0: Good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles and you would like to open them, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 today. Ephesians chapter 3. And while you guys are going there, I will tell you that we have felt uh, very welcomed. uh, When Doug sent the email about coming here, he was going to be away, and did I want to come to uh, spend some time and preach in this uh, the International Bible Church. I asked my wife, Helga, I said, what do you think? And before I even could uh, say anything, she was already saying, "Uh, what do you mean, what do I think? Of course we're going. So I didn't have a choice in the matter, but uh, we've been very well taken care of. We're staying at Doug's house, driving Doug's car, using Doug's snorkeling equipment. Uh, (laughs) I I could find preaching notes, I would preach Doug's sermon, and anyway, we've been very well taken care of, and I have no problem uh, being called Steve. Uh, I don't feel the necessity. to. I'm an informal kind of guy. Uh, they call Jesus, Jesus, so you can call me Steve. I'm okay with that. We've are. we we've been here a number of times uh, over the past uh, number of years. Obviously, we were sad uh, to miss last year. We try to come every year, but of course, uh, the world was a strange place and continues to be a strange place uh, over the last couple of years, last year and, and into this year. So we didn't get to come. Uh, I will say your building looks amazing, what a blessing that is. Uh, you guys are close to finishing that, so that is certainly uh, a gift of God, how this church could uh, build a project like that is really remarkable. So um, God is doing something clearly special with this church here on the island of Bonaire. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to read to you and with you Ephesians 3. Uh, I'm only going to do actually verses 14 down through verse 19. I'll leave it to you to read the last verse, uh, two verses before you go to bed tonight. I'm going to read, then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon together. Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, our our life goal, our our life endeavor is uh, to know you, to know the, the power of the resurrection, and to know the fellowship of sufferings. And this morning, Father, we are dying to know more about your love, to really comprehend what is incomprehensible, So Lord, we hope that maybe after we hear your word, we might be a little closer to understanding the magnitude of your love. in Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said. So at home, I always start my sermons with a question, and I will uh, do the same thing here. I'll ask you the question, does God love you? And you will say, of course God loves us. We know God loves us because we read it in the Bible. And so we can answer that question very easily. We know what the Bible says. We know what we're supposed to say. Yes, God loves us. We know that. But then I've come up with a habit over the last number of years of asking God's people another question. And that question is, does God like you? And I find people stall. They stutter. They seem uncertain. Wait a second. God loves me. I know that. But I'm not sure if he actually likes me. That's a more difficult question to ask, and I've received all kinds of answers to that question. Some people have said, well, uh, I don't know if he likes me today. Like, I know he loves me, but I'm not sure if he's real happy with me today. I'm not sure if he really likes who I am right now. And so the question is, does God like you? Or do you think God might love you more than you've been able to understand? Now, are there any grandparents in here? If you're a grandparent, raise your hand. So that means you have grandchildren, and we all know we would have had them first if we knew what they were, how enjoyable grandkids were. We would have skipped having kids, going right to grandkids. Uh, I, I have, we have two granddaughters right now, and uh, the the older granddaughter is three, and she just brings me such joy. The younger one is is not as interactive at this point. Uh, she's a joy as well, but in a different way. And I have learned something about God's love from dealing with my granddaughter. Because I can't, I've never experienced that kind of love. It's a different kind of love than a husband and wife or for your children. It's a different kind of thing. And I'm thinking that if I can love a toddler like that, and I'm a human father, you know, this is Jesus said, if you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children then how much more God? If I, being relative to God, evil, I mean, I'm not even close to God's goodness and His holiness and His perfection in love and grace and mercy, and if I can feel and experience that kind of love toward a toddler, then how much more God looks at me and I bring Him joy, even on my worst day? Well, is that true? Is that accurate? Well, let's dive in. A little bit of background. Ephesians is one of Paul's uh, prison epistles. He's, he's written it from prison. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, the first half of it, first three chapters, are based on all the blessings we have in Christ. I mean, all these things, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all working to bless us. Did you know that? You are an object of God's gifts. And so, he lays that out in the first three chapters, and then the, uh, I'm still here, everybody, I know, <clears throat> squirrel, that's it. In, in, in Bonaire, in, in Virginia, we have squirrels, and so when someone gets distracted, we say squirrel, but in Bonaire, we say iguana. <clears throat> so the first three chapters are uh, about these just tremendous blessings, and then the last three chapters are really about what it means to live and how we live based on what we know about ourselves in the first three chapters, all we've been given. And that forms the foundation, knowing it, experiencing it, forms the foundation for us to uh, walk as children of the light, to walk in love, to walk circumspectly, looking around, and then to have all the relationships that we have, our relationships between husband and wife, and parents and, and child, and children and parents, and work relationships. All that is the last half of the book, and it's all based on what we're going to talk about today, because this prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 14 down through uh, 21, this prayer is the hinge of the whole book. Everything hinges on uh, getting from the first half to the second half, taking what we know and making that a reality, so that we can live the expected, the the normal Christian life. Is all based on what Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus. And for you and for me. I think this is the same prayer that would apply to us. So, verse 14, with that background, we dive in and and he begins his prayer. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason. So, for what reason? For the reasons I just gave you, because of the first three chapters. For this reason is you, now pay attention carefully, you have been chosen. You didn't have to be choosable, you were chosen and you were adopted, and you were accepted, and you were forgiven, and you were redeemed, and you were sealed and given the security, and you've been made alive, and you've been brought near, and you've become a citizen of heaven, and you become part of the family, the household of God, and all these things that Paul is, is supposed to now communicate to the church so that we can live those things out in front of the world, and people go, man, you're God, is awesome. But if we don't live it out, they don't see the awesomeness of our God. And so Paul has to pray. And he says, for this reason, this is why I'm bowing my knee. When he bows his knee to pray, when he closes his eyes, who is he picturing? I kneel before who? The Father. When he bows his knee in prayer, he's got in his mind a picture of God, the Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. Now, I have found, and maybe you have found the same thing, that the church has become, uh, we're very attracted to Jesus. We're very comfortable with him. He's the approachable one. He's the one who understands me. We're not so comfortable with, in my experience, at least in the States, not so comfortable with the Father. He's the angry one. He's the mean one. He's the judgmental one. But the love of the Son, where does he get it? He gets it from the Father. And so when you pray, when Paul prays, he says, Our Father, I bow my knee before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul drops this, what I call a theological, social, and cultural bomb on the people. Because he says something about the Father. He tells us the quality of this Father. What's he say? He says, from or out from whom... Each and every individual family or lineage or family line in heaven and on earth, wherever they are, derives its name. So there's something unique about this father. This father is the ultimate father from whom every family on planet earth is meant to derive its character, acceptance, and culture. That's remarkable. And part of the theme in in Ephesians is unifying Jew and Gentile, radically different cultures, radically different people. And Paul bringing them, showing them that they're all brought together in one family with one identity, one culture, one father, no matter where you are, whatever country you've come from to bring you here. Maybe you were born here. Maybe you've moved here. Maybe you're visiting here. But you need to know, especially the men in the room need to know that the kind of father you are is meant to be directed, guided, learned from the ultimate father, God the Father. That's who is intended to be every human being's father. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 23, 9, Jesus said, Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. If you've ever traveled to Iceland, in Iceland, I've never traveled there, but I had a friend from Iceland, believe it or not. And in Iceland, your last name is a concoction, a combination of your father's first name and your gender. So if your father's first name was Steve, so my son, his name is Jacob, and his last name wouldn't be the same last name as I have. It would be my first name and the word son. So he, if he lived in Iceland, he would be Jacob Steveson. And I have a daughter, and her name would be uh, Madeline Steve Daughter. And so the minute you introduce yourself, everybody knows who you are. Everybody knows where you're from, who you're connected to, where you're accepted, where you belong. If you're from China, interestingly, in China, when you introduce yourself, it's customary to introduce yourself, does anybody know how? Last name first. You always introduce yourself last name first, so that everybody knows immediately who you are, who you're connected to, where you're from, what your family's like, and they know how to identify you, how to place you. Why is the family name so important? Belonging, identity, culture, access to privileges. I, I, my two, I love my two kids tremendously. They can have whatever they want because they're my kids. But I don't know about your, your kids. I'm not sending your kids to college. I'm not buying your kids a car because they're your kids. It's your job to buy them a car or do whatever you're going to do for them. See, my children have access To all of my wealth and all of the inheritance and and my, to me, to me personally, because they're my children. And so do you know what culture is? This is so important because every family all over the face of planet earth, this big, big planet, so many, there are so many cultures on planet earth, aren't there? Do you know what culture is? Culture is the set of beliefs and practices that you got from your parents. I think that is so cool. Your language, the food you eat, the customs you have, the dress, the the way you dress, all these things. You were born, you didn't know nothing about nothing. Now, my granddaughter, whom I already told you about, and I'll stop, I won't stop telling you about her, she calls me Papa, and my wife is Nana. Now, why does she call us those things? Was she born and she read a book while she was in the womb about what to call these two people in your life that you're going to get to know? She didn't know. We told her. We said, I'm Papa, and she's Nana. And so she goes, okay, you know, that's what I'm going to call you. We could have told her to call us anything. Snuffleupagus. Now, you don't know what a snuffleupagus is, but that's... uh, We could have made up any word we want because she didn't know when kids are born, they don't know anything about anything and everything they begin to learn and their brains are growing at an incredible pace and they are observing and watching and they're learning from you how life is supposed to work that's what they're learning why i I love to travel anybody else love to travel i love to travel Because as I go around the world, whether I've been to Ukraine and to Nepal and to Spain and to Bonaire and to uh, Ireland and all kinds of places, visiting the churches and hanging out with God's people, and as different as America is from Nepal, completely socially different cultures, when you meet believers, we have more in common than we have different. Have you noticed that about traveling? Believers, no matter where they are in the world, have more in common regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnicity, we have more in common than we have different because we speak the language of our heavenly father. We talk, whatever we're wearing, we talk about grace and unconditional love and mercy. And so Paul says, oh, this is who I bow my knee to, not Father Abraham of the Jews, not to Caesar who would have been the father of all Rome, but to God the Father, the one who was meant to set the tone and culture for every family on earth. And he says, verse 16, that out of his glorious riches, all the things we talked about in chapter 1, 2, 3, he's rich in grace, he's rich in mercy, all of those things, all a gift. Have you comprehended that? That your job was not to be choosable or lovable or forgivable or adoptable? Your job was just to believe that God is so great that he looks at you on your worst day and says, I want to adopt you in my family. I want to make you one of my children. That's hard to comprehend. Sometimes I don't like being with me. And that the God of all the universe has chosen me. And he's chosen you to be one of his children So out of, that, it's out of that, it's out of that riches, that's what Paul is drawing on in his prayer, that out of that, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there's going to be a, a, uh, a crescendo of, of things that Paul is praying for. One is building upon the previous one. So the first thing is he wants those people, he wants you to have strength within, inner strength. People spend a ton of time at the gym to build the outer strength, to get running. And I like to go cycling, uh, go to the gym, get stronger on the outside. But let me ask you a question. Would you say you have tremendous inner strength today? How would you answer that question? If someone asked you, how would you rate on a scale of one to 10, how strong are you on the inside? Are you emotionally strong? Are you psychologically strong? Are you mentally strong? I've found that the pandemic has really exposed a lot of weakness in people. You you never know how strong you really are until you are faced with resistance. And then you find out how strong you really are when you're in a crisis or there's a, a difficulty. And so this time we've been living in has brought a tremendous difficulty And it's revealed either inner strength. Wow, I'm stronger than I thought. Or inner weakness. How are you doing in the battle against your inner desires? You see, much of religion is based on the outer man. All we care about is what you do. As long as you do the right things, that satisfies us. Don't be satisfied with that. Don't be satisfied with just doing the right things, having the right appearance. That's never what the Christian life was supposed to be about. Those are secondary things. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you actors. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Did you spend so much time making sure the outside looks good, but you, you ignore the cleanliness of the inside? How would you feel... If you came to our house and I gave you a cup that was shiny on the outside, we'd shine it up on the outside, but inside you looked in there, there's a bunch of dirt inside. And I said, here, have a cup of water. Yeah, I'm not drinking. It's dirty. It's d- I don't care what it looks like on the outside. It better be clean on the inside. And so the Christian life is concerned with what's going on. That's what he says here, that you would be strengthened. And it's passive. It's what God is doing, giving you power to be strong On the inside, in your inner, the man or the woman within. That's the one we often ignore or the one we want to hide by dressing up the outside. How is that going to happen? It's by power through his spirit. Did you see that? By power through his spirit. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in your life, is to communicate to you the deep things of God. Well, pastor, what deep things are those? Those are the things of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Like, I can read that I am chosen, but that does nothing for me. Reading it, I can say it in a Bible study. I can preach about being chosen. But unless I understand the emotional response to being chosen, anybody ever felt left out? You ever had that feeling of just being overlooked, left out, passed by? That's a terrible feeling. But then what's that feeling? So, so my daughter, uh, excuse me, my son came with, with his fiance. And they got engaged. When did you guys get engaged? About two, three weeks ago? Something like that? And I don't know, that, I don't know how you feel about that. But when two people choose one another, there's a great empowering there. I mean, it's like, wow. You, I look at my wife. We've been married 20. I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> More than 20 years. <laughs> yeah, and see we can sit apart oh yeah she loves me it's okay yeah you know, they're like right next to each oh, other. we love each other so much <laughs> but there is it is so psychologically powerful to be chosen because you know you don't feel worth being chosen like, I look at me, and, and I go, I don't know why you married me. Like, I know me, and there's a lot of guys. Better looking, better, smarter, richer, all these guys. Why, did, why in the world did you choose me? Because, I don't know, I'll have to ask you that after church. <laughs> we'll talk about that again. But I think she would say for the same reason I chose her, because I love you. Because I love you. And so the Spirit of God is communicating in your inner being that you're chosen and that you're adopted so that you can not just know it here, but you can know it in your heart. That that's how God feels about you. What man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, 1 Corinthians says, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have, not rece- we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us. That's what the Spirit wants you to know, is all of the things God has freely given you. And he's communicating them where? In your inner being, your emotional life, your psychological life, your spiritual life. So that's the first thing. The second thing that he prays for is uh, closeness with Christ. Look at this, verse 17, he says, so that, now we're building, first is strengthened within by the Spirit. Verse 17 is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Closeness with Christ. Can we agree that sharing your heart with someone requires trust? If you're going to share your heart with somebody, do you just, you just go out to the, to the coffee shop and sit down next to a stranger and go, hey, let me tell you about everything that's deep inside my heart? They would run from you as fast as they could. So when you share your heart with somebody, that takes trust, doesn't it? And so he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Why? How does that happen? Through faith, through confidence, through trust. Is there someone in your life you just don't trust? Someone you work with, a neighbor, someone you live near? And you just look at him, you now. I just, I don't trust you. Sorry, I just, you've lied to me. You've burned me. You've hurt me. And I'm not going to let you what? I'm not going to let you close. Why? Because I don't trust you. Is this a passage, this is so interesting. Is this a passage about salvation? I mean, he's praying, he's praying that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. And I've learned and you've learned that when I got saved, I received the Holy Spirit. So what's the deal? Don't we already, isn't Christ already dwelling in our hearts? Why does Christ, ha, why does Paul have to pray for believers? Because nobody would argue Paul's writing to believers. Why does he have to pray for believers that Christ would settle down and be comfortable? That's what the word dwell means, to settle down and be comfortable in their hearts. This, I believe, is describing what we would call the experience of being filled with the Spirit, being filled with Christ. And it's a cool word. The word dwell is is two words put together. One means to live or to reside, to remain, uh, to settle. And the other word is down or in. So, or or to to be home and down. So to be down. Christ wants to be down home in your heart. He wants to be settled in to your heart. Now I can tell you that uh, we have settled into Doug's home. We are very comfortable there. We are coming in and out. I've got the keys. He's giving me keys to, uh, to every aspect of the house. And we've just settled right in. We're sharing this space. Now, Doug's not there, but we're making ourselves at home in his house. Now, why are we making ourselves at home in Doug's house? Because he gave me the key and he trusted me to come in. And I trusted him to go and stay. We don't stay there because it's the most expensive house on the island, the most beautiful house on the island. It's not. It's nice. But I've seen some more beautiful places on the island. Doug warned me, the air conditioning doesn't work so good in this room, and it's better in that room, and, you know, every house has its quirks, right? And so does my heart. My heart has quirks. And I have seen and heard this verse preached with a lot of pressure, like, oh man, Christ is going to come to live. He's going to come to settle down comfortably in my heart. I better get ready. I got a lot of work to do. Otherwise, He's not going to come and live in my heart. This is not a passage about being sanctified. This is not a passage about getting my life right so Christ can come in. This is a matter of being strengthened by the Spirit of God communicating to me God's love, His grace his choice of me, his desire for me. And then once I know that, as I begin to strengthen inside by knowing that I'm loved and that I'm chosen, now all of a sudden, I let the walls down and I can let let God in more. I can let Jesus in more. Revelation 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. I'm blown away. Are you blown away? that Christ trusts you enough to come and dwell in your heart? I mean, that is remarkable that that the second person of the tree says to you that I'm going to come and live in your heart. Like, do you know what's in there? I mean, have you seen what's in my heart? And you know what Jesus says to that? "Uh Uh-huh. I know exactly. I know what's in there more than you know what's in there. You don't even know what's in there, but I know what's in there. And my presence in your heart, will give you confidence. I'll earn your trust. And you, as I'm dwelling with you, as I'm settling down comfortably with with you, as you trust me more, you'll let down more walls. And you'll begin to experience my life more. I appreciate that your pastor has trusted me enough to let me in. And you know what I want to do with that trust? I want to honor that. So I'm going to clean the floors and get the sand out of his truck and take it to get washed. Because he's, you know, you want to build a relationship with someone, you want to get close to somebody, give them a little responsibility. Let them have a little bit of trust in your life and see what they do with it. That builds closeness. And so Christ says, "I, I trust you enough to come and live in your heart. The question is, will you trust me enough to let me in? That's the biggest problem I've seen in Christians. The problem isn't whether or not God wants to do a work in my life. The question is, will I let him come in? Will I let him close enough to actually have access to me? I have access to him, and I want to honor. That's my response. I want to honor that trust. So he goes on now that Christ is now settling down, living comfortably in our hearts. Uh, And then the third thing is now that that's happening, he prays for us to have a better grasp of his love. Look at that. He says, and I pray that you, here this morning on Bonaire, at the International Bible Church, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, whether they're Dutch or Bonairean or American or Chinese or Taiwanese or from wherever, that all of God's people all over the world would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The energy of our Christian life is spent not in trying to be more acceptable. We're already accepted in the beloved. That's chapter one. Not in trying to love myself more, not in trying to be loved more, but recognizing the extent of Christ's love. Our greatest challenge is we can't comprehend it. So we substitute human love for God's love. And we expect that this is how I love, so this must be how God loves. And we couldn't be farther from the truth. This has been the goal of my life recently, and I've realized that I am, I I can't even begin to comprehend the kind of love that God has. The kind of love that loves an enemy. The kind of love that loves painfully, even when it's painful. There's two examples he gives. uh, that are already pre-existing conditions. He says, I pray that you, and it's passive, having already been permanently rooted. That's an agricultural term. Have you ever tried to dig out a rooted tree? We have trees, we have a lot of trees. We live on a farm in Virginia, 22 acres, and I love fruit trees. I love things that produce fruit. But sometimes uh, you have to move things around or dig one up to put something new there. And there's something called a taproot root which is the central root that goes down deep into the soil, and I have sweated a lot of sweat trying to dig out a tree that's rooted because that thing is deep. And so already, God's people, you're already rooted. You've got your roots down deep where? In the love of God. Is that true for you? Could you say today that, yes, I am rooted. I know that I know that I know, and I experience that God loves me. That's already a settled thing. I know that he loves me all the time just as I am. I don't have to get my act cleaned up. I don't have to change anything. This is Romans chapter 5. The kind of love that is commended is that while you were weak, without strength, an enemy of God, that's when Christ died for you. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He died. For, picture your worst moment of your life. Picture your most ungodly, unholy, embarrassing moment. And at that moment in your life, picture Jesus Christ coming up next to you and saying to you, he'll call you by your name, he'll say it to me, Steve, at this moment right now, I love you as much as I ever will. Right now. And that's the kind of love that needs to be experienced among the people at the International Bible Church. I know you've blown it. I know you've failed. I know you've messed up. I know you feel unworthy. And that's why people loving you right then is so important. Because that's the only way we can really experience, one of the ways we experience God's love. We experience it from other people loving us at our worst moment. And then there's the the Holy Spirit inside of us crying out, Abba, Father. So the first is this this example of uh, agriculture. The second that were rooted and grounded or established or have a foundation of love. So with those two things already permanently in place, from that you build on that. I know God loves me, but what now I need to grasp in my mind is now how wide, long, high, and deep that love really is. That's what you need to know. What's the purpose of Bible reading? What's the purpose of Bible study? Not to get more information so you can impress your friends or other people at a Bible study. The whole purpose and point of Bible study is that you can know how loved you are by God and how his family works, how relationships work. This is the real pursuit of Christian life. And he says that you can have the the power to be completely capable to grasp this. Now, Creatures on Earth have places, atmospheres that they're comfortable dwelling in. Would you agree with that? I mean, we're on Bonaire, the, the offshore scuba diving capital of the world. So I don't scuba dive. I hate to admit that, but my wife does. Uh, she scuba dives, my son scuba dives, but I don't. Cause I know something that they haven't figured out yet. That I was not created to be under the water like that. It is not natural. I do not have gills. It's not, now the fish, I love snorkeling because I snorkel around and I look at the fish and I go, man, look how easily they move around in the water. Look how comfortable they are. They just, you know, moving around, doing their thing. They don't know this exists. They don't know you're here meeting. They have no comprehension of this world, of this. They, they couldn't, if you brought that fish out into our atmosphere, what would happen? It would die. Can't exist here. There's a story that I love about two young fish and they're swimming around uh, in the water and an older fish swims by them. And he says, hey boys, how's the water? And the two fish look at one another and they say, what's water? And I love that story because water, the atmosphere that you live in, the culture that you live in is so familiar that you don't even realize you're living in it. It's so familiar to you. It's just, it's the air you breathe. And so we're not permanently made to exist there. And what Paul is saying is that you, the, the thing that you need to realize, the thing that he's praying that you would comprehend is as I'm scuba diving, and, and let's, let's assume for a minute, oh, my, as my wife is scuba diving and I'm looking at her from above, and I see there she is, she's, you know, let's say 20 feet down. When you look side to side, what do you see? As far as you can see. You see water. When you look up, what do you see? You see water. When you look down, what do you see? That's why I don't scuba dive. It's a long way down. You see water. The Christian life is an experience of being immersed in God's love. That's the experience. Now, the challenge for us is to experience it. That's the challenge, and so that's why he goes on to say the fourth thing is that he wants you to experience that love, not just to know about it, not just to grasp it mentally. Like, so the first thing you have to do is go, wow, like, God really loves me, and then Paul says, verse 19, and to know. That's an important word. You can circle, you can make a note of that. That's a certain kind of knowing that means knowing by experience, You know there's different ways to gain knowledge? How many of you know that the earth is flat? Did you know that the earth is flat? Wait a second, pastor. You're not one of those flat earthers, are you? No, no, no. I'm not a flat earther. I just wanted to see the way you looked when I said that. What's the shape of the earth? It's round. How do you know? Any astronauts in here? No. So how do you know it's round? Because someone told you it's round it's a common knowledge. That's one kind of knowledge. It's just commonly accepted knowledge. We know because other people have experimented and seen it. We just go, okay. If I say, hey, is the earth round? You go, yeah, the earth is round. Why? Because that's what I've been told. I believe it. That's one kind of knowledge. That's common knowledge or popular opinion. The second one is now if you could get in a in a, a ship and go around the earth, you get in get in a space capsule and go around the earth, take some measurements, check it out, then... You would know, a different kind of knowing, that the earth is round. It's a different kind of knowing, knowing by experience. You've, you've walked around the earth. If you could walk all around the globe, you'd get a better sense of what it's like. So you see, before we came to Bonaire, I had heard about Bonaire. People told us that Bonaire was a great place to scuba dive. Wonderful. But had I experienced Bonaire at that point? No. Somebody say no. Anybody who's awake say no. No, I had no, I I didn't have experience, but I knew from popular opinion that Bonaire websites and you can Google it, Bonaire, great place to scuba dive. And then we started researching. You can Google anything. So we start looking at maps and learning about these places that I can't pronounce, like Condike. It's not natural. And we, but, so I read a map. Now what if I read that map and said, oh yeah, yeah, I've experienced Bonaire. What would you say to me? No, you haven't. Your two-dimensional understanding of our island doesn't even come close to saying you've experienced it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, talks about that very thing. A map is a two-dimensional rendering that you study, that you look at, to, so you can know what you're meant to experience. The Bible... Doctrine is not God. That's what C.S. Lewis said. I'm not saying that's what C.S. Lewis said. Doctrine is not God. Doctrine exists to show you God. But don't confuse knowing doctrine for knowing God. Do you understand that? Like I can't confuse knowing a map of Bonaire for actually experiencing Bonaire. There's so much to experience that you can't explain in a map. Jesus said, you search the scriptures. To the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are pointing to Jesus. The church is great at learning about, teaching about, defining, but at some point you have to have the experience of God's love, the experience of Christ's love. And the final thing he says to them at the end of this, is so that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. And that means to be filled up to the brim, that, in, that you may be filled to the measure, flo- uh, flooded with all the totality, the completeness, not lacking anything. So that's the ultimate culmination. Do you feel full? Do you feel, are you experiencing the fullness of God in your life? And if not, that's okay. But just know you can use this prayer To go, wow, I need to first have inner strength by understanding Ephesians 1, 2, 3, just what God has done for me. And then I can let Christ into my heart, and he'll come and settle down there. And now I'm rooted and grounded in love, and now I can begin to grasp just the extent, be immersed in that love. And then I can begin to experience that. When do I experience it? When I most when I am most in touch with my sinfulness then God's love and grace mean more to me than ever. When I am most in touch with my failure, now I know what God's unconditional love is about. When I feel most unworthy, that's when I have to go back to Ephesians 1 and say, no, no, God has chosen me. That's when I need it. When it becomes real and you experience it. And then you watch things change in your life. And then you watch how it changes the kind of husband you are the kind of wife you are, the kind of parent you are, the kind of child you are. Then you can begin to live Christian life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we close out, I pray that this group would, would go home and dive back into this prayer and try to own it, try to think about it, try to uh, make it internal, Lord, that we, that this church would be a church that is filled with the fullness of God, that when people hear about the International Bible Church, they would say, man, those people are full full of the Holy Spirit, full of God. I pray for you to bless this church. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen.